Hello, and welcome back to the Glossy Week in Review podcast. I'm your host, senior fashion reporter Danny Parisi, and I'm here with our international reporter, Zofia Zviglinska. How are you, Zofia? Yeah, very good. Thank you for bringing me on again. Of course, we're always happy to have you. Um, Zofia has been giving me wedding planning advice, um, of which I'm going <laughs> to continue to pepper her with questions for as the next year and a half, probably. But for now, we're going to talk about a couple of big topics today, first of which is um, Caring had their earnings earlier this week, and we're going to be taking a look about at its performance, some of the brands, Gucci, Balenciaga in particular, um, and how it stacks up compared to some of the other big luxury competitors. Then we're going to talk about some new sustainability goals at Levi's and segue that into some other sustainability discussion. And then finally, Zofia is going to tell us a little bit about a British Fashion Council panel that she moderated recently, um, which I think was about garment repair and and stuff related to that. So I've got questions about that. Let's start with Caring, though. So they had their earnings earlier this week. And I, f- I feel like the last couple of weeks on this podcast, particularly, we've been talking a lot about how luxury brands and the big luxury companies seem almost kind of immune to a lot of the economic pressure that's going on. LVMH is like their sales are exploding. Um, All these luxury brands are raising their prices and doing amazing at the time when a lot of other sectors are kind of suffering. Caring was actually a bit of an outlier. Um, Their earnings were not, they were positive, but not super great, especially not compared to uh, some of the other big luxury groups. Um, Their sales rose 1% in the first uh, three months of the year compared to LVMH, which was up 18% and Hermes, which was up 23%. And it's definitely, I think they they were kind of disappointed. A lot of the statements from the executives were talking about how the results were mixed and how they're trying to turn things around and stuff. Um, the two biggest problems, I think, are, you know, the brands that had the two biggest problems were Gucci, um, which is huge for caring. It's their flagship brand. I think it makes up half their revenue or up there about um, kind of like the equivalent of Louis Vuitton for LVMH. And again, like not, it's not tanking or anything, but because it's so big, um, you know, a flat or even kind of just middling um, performance from Gucci has impacts on the whole group. Um, So Gucci had their creative director, Alessandro Michele, just left. Um, His replacement, replacement, Sabato DeSarno, um, hasn't started yet. He came from Valentino. So uh, they're kind of just in a weird sort of transition spot. we're going to talk about Balenciaga in a minute, but let me stop there. Zofia, what are your thoughts on Caring's earnings and Gucci's performance in particular? Yeah, I think I agree that, you know, in terms of luxury performance, they they didn't perform quite as well um, as LVMH and its various brands. Um, I think that a lot of that was kind of down to Gucci and Balenciaga being down, especially compared to previous seasons. I think that, you know, some of the takeaways from the call and the earnings were that the focus was on ultra kind of VIP customers. Um, and that was where the attention was. And I think that that is, in a sense, recession proofing. I think they said that it was like 5% of their total customers are in that category. Um, and yet they make up a significant proportion of those sales. So I kind of looked into all of the things that they're doing for them. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, Gucci has had a couple sort of big um, ultra high end things. They had the Gucci salon recently. Um, I've noticed a couple brands sort of, you know, like you said, when when we're veering toward kind of a rougher economic climate, pushing more towards their 
the highest end of their consumer base um, because those people are less likely to lose their jobs or, you know, not have mm. spending power anymore. Um, I'm actually hoping to talk to um, somebody from the brand Frame this uh, week because they're like selling a $12,000 pair of jeans um, coming up. I think it's just one pair. Yeah, I think it's just one pair. It's not like a new addition to the line, I think. Um, but they're they're definitely a premium brand, but I don't think they're quite luxury. And it's interesting how, you know, when, when the situation is like this, uh, brands, especially if you're already kind of luxury adjacent, you know, want to look upward rather than downward, rather than pushing prices down and hoping to get more people, they're like, let's just focus on the people who, um, yeah, like I said, are the ones doing the layoffs instead of the ones being laid off. Um, <laughs> But let's talk about Balenciaga. Well, actually, did you have any other thoughts on Gucci before we talk Balenciaga? Yeah, I mean, it was just the the Gucci salon. Like, I think that the growth of these kind of private stores and experiences is something that you see a lot, you know, with, with Chanel, with other brands as well, where putting up the prices is no longer kind of enough. It's almost like tailoring this whole experience, not just to section off a part of the store for VIPs, but to actually create dedicated spaces um, just for them. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. And, and then, so the other big problem, I think that, uh, uh, caring had actually one, one quick one that's not brand specific is just lack of sales in North America, um, mm-hmm. or, you know, f- kind of flat performance in North America. It's interesting. They're doing really well in Europe. Um, they're seeing some recovery in China, but their North American, you know, performance was not so great. Interesting because I had just seen something from Burberry where they said that, I think they said that they thought the UK was the worst market for luxury right now. Um, but caring is seeing their problems in the US. I'm wondering, Zofia, do you have any thoughts on the UK versus US market for luxury right now? Does one seem particularly more, you know, I don't know, a safer bet? I mean, for me, I'd still say that the North American market is more kind of significant and probably one that's going to be easier to turn around. Um, in, in terms of the UK, the the fact that the tax um, rebate that's offered to tourists is still not being applied, like it's something that's a very common thing among, um, you know, a lot of countries who want to boost their tourism business. And that has still not been reinstated after almost I think it's almost three years now. Um, and it's had a significant impact on, you know, luxury brands like Burberry. Whereas I think that what they were saying during the call um, around the North American market was that it was just an issue of um, kind of conversions. Um, so even though there was mm-hmm. kind of traffic in stores, it was more about kind of transferring those two sales um, and possibly just um, redesigning that strategy to to kind of focus on areas where where those sales might more be likely. Yeah, for sure. Um, and let's finally talk a little bit about Balenciaga. So I think that um, it was really last quarter, um, the end of 2022, where Balenciaga really like took a hit from um, obviously that that ad campaign that everyone knows about, and we don't have to relitigate. Um, <laughs> But I don't think they've really recovered. They've kind of been in quiet mode since then. Like, they put out new collections, but they sort of, like, there was a statement about how we're not really doing anything crazy around it. We're just putting the clothes out and then just focusing on, you know, like, taking time to focus on ourselves almost. Um, And, uh, but I I think that's, you know, was another contributor for Caring is that Balenciaga just has not really bounced back yet. They're not quite as big for Caring as um, Gucci was uh, or Mm -hmm. is. 
um, but still a big brand, like still a key brand. And Demna was, you know, was and is still a really exciting designer for them. Um, so I'm sure not having Balenciaga bounce back has has been a factor as well. Yeah, I think that's been a significant impact. And I think one of the the other things that um, they outlined during this call, and it's a topic that I think everyone's talking about until they're blue in the face, is the importance of quiet luxury. Um, and it's quite funny that this trend is leading so much of these earning conversations for brands, like it keeps coming up in the questions. Um, and with caring in particular, like they, they said that, you know, for Brioni um, and for Boucheron, which is helmed by... Um, Helen Pulit skin, um, like a lot of that success is kind of potentially down to to this trend, um, this kind of capsule women's wear launch that came from Brioni last year, and generally mm. just this aspect of restrained slash quiet luxury that's been coming around. Yeah, for sure. And I was talking to Jill about this, but I um, I don't think the caring performance totally upends the idea that luxury is mostly, you know, for the most part, the luxury sector is handling um, this economic situation really well. Um, mm. I think caring is a little bit of a unique position because their their main brand is in the middle of kind of a transition period with their creative director. And then uh, another big brand had kind of a PR crisis. Um but it, it, Caring's not the only luxury company to not fully, you know, be completely invulnerable. Um, we were talking about possibly doing a section on this, but I'll just mention it quick. Um, the luxury resale company Kudoni, Kudoni, I don't know how you say it, um, just shut down really abruptly, I think, last week. Um, they were backed by eBay, so not not part of any of the big luxury conglomerates or anything, but still, it was like kind of abrupt, and they mentioned not being able to afford to do business anymore. So there's definitely a little bit, especially at the margins, maybe of um, the luxury industry, not everyone is totally uh, invulnerable or like Chanel or Hermes, where they can just, you know, keep raising prices and not suffer at all. Let's talk a little bit about Levi's. Uh, I wanted to talk about this because I saw a great article in Bloomberg recently talking about Levi's approach to water usage and uh, reduction of of water usage. Um, basically, Levi's strategy is something called contextual water targets. Sophia, you probably know way more about this than I do, um, but uh, basically, contextual water targets means reducing water usage in places where it's needed most. So, for example, if you've got a supply chain that runs from North Africa to the northeast of the U.S., um, it might be a lot easier to reduce your water usage in the U.S., but it, it's more impactful you know, to do it in a place that needs the water more like North Africa or Egypt or some, you know, if you're in a really dry place or even in within the U.S., um, like on the West Coast, where there's a lot of places that are having droughts. Um, anyway, so the idea is to kind of focus your efforts on the parts of your supply chain where it's most impactful. And I think there's a the reason I want to talk about this, I feel like there's a lot of major kind of crises on the horizon when it comes to sustainability and the environment um, and Brands need to start thinking about some of this stuff as inevitable, unfortunately. Um, I think even if we today did absolutely everything right and suddenly switched like, all, you know, all of our consumption to completely renewable and like did everything correct, a lot of stuff is already kind of in the, you know, like the ball's kind of rolling. So there would still be water shortages and stuff. Um, so I think it's worth it for for brands to kind of like do what Levi's doing and look at the supply chain in chunks and find the most effective use of your time and effort and not just like the easiest way to, you know, put on the annual report that you reduced emissions 10%. But if you reduce it in the place that doesn't need it as much, you know, 
that's less impactful. Anyway, that's why I wanted to talk about this, but I'm wondering, you do a lot of sustainability reporting. You've talked to a lot of people about this. What's your take on that kind of strategy? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important coming from a brand like Levi's because, you know, with the denim industry and the impact of cotton farming, um, I think that that's an issue that has kind of continuously come up. Like with denim in particular, like you're talking about water usage, I think there's been major links to, you know, companies who are heavily heavily reliant on cotton um, to things like the gradual slash very um, not gradual draining of the RLC um, that's had a significant mm-hmm. impact in that particular region. So I think it makes sense to, to you know, to contextualize um, those water targets uh, or water reduction targets and make them as kind of specific to the region where that impact is being held. And I think the other thing to say is that, you know, Levi's has been doing a lot of stuff with data. Um, and I think that this kind of shows the way that, you know, a brand can use data for sustainability just as much as it is in other parts of the business. I think that this kind of contextualizing is very kind of important and showcases the the kind of impact efforts that someone is doing if if they're doing it in an intelligent way using that data. Yeah, for sure. And, and um, you know, this article that I read went into a lot of detail about um, the different methods that Levi's has come up with to reduce some of their water usage, things like tumbling jeans with golf balls rather than using a liquid fabric softener or using gaseous detergent instead of liquid detergent, um, you know, stuff like that, which is all really interesting. Um, it does feel to me like uh, there, you know, there's lots of ways that you can use data and science to, um, you know, come up with all these new innovative kind of ways to reduce uh, emissions and water usage and stuff like that in different parts of the supply chain. I do feel like there's still some big, like obvious but difficult things that brands need to do, which is just like stop making so much stuff, mm. stop using so many fossil fuels that are less, you know, maybe there's not really a way to innovate your way out of that problem other than just take the hit and like not profit as much. Um, and uh, I, I I read a study recently that was, um, I think it was from Ulterior Insights about how uh, a lot of Gen Z, um, you know, young people like sustainability, but especially recently, especially in the last year, a lot of sustainable fashion is like very expensive, um, which it kind of should be because usually that means usually, uh, you know, if you're paying everyone involved in the process a fair wage, it will be more expensive. Like places mm. like Shein or, you know, different fast fashion companies, it's so cheap because like somebody's not getting paid very well along the line. So it's not a bad thing that it's expensive, but I do think that it's, um, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a sacrifice to shop more ethically and it can be a sacrifice for the brands to produce more ethically there's kind of no way around i think the fundamental bit of like it is more profitable to like not hurt like to not care about the environment you could probably make more money if you didn't give a shit um you should and i don't think that's you know maybe i'm wrong though i don't know What, what what are your thoughts on that yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think that there's, you know, bigger problems that should be addressed as well. Like, obviously, when, you know, Earth Month comes around, a lot of companies publish their sustainability reports, and I'm assuming that this kind of has come out of this. Um, but I think that, you know, the issue of overproduction and while things like fibre-to-fibre recycling are growing, and I think the companies like Levi's will, will probably be taking advantage of that very soon, 
it's it's still a big issue and that that kind of chain of ownership and the various kind of components of um garment ownership it just means that there's still a lot of stock left over from stuff that is already produced um and therefore you know that that water reduction that is the most significant is the one which has just produced less stuff um <clears throat> and Sheehan is already in um some hot water this week as well for the new kind of partnership with canopy um that has kind of given some issues again um to the brand and they've come out with a spokesperson for the first time so that's been quite an interesting development yeah definitely and speaking of overproduction our our last topic here um so you moderated a panel at the British Fashion Council's Institute of Positive Fashion recently. I wasn't there, um, but you told me a little bit about it. I want to ask you more about it. Um, and that was kind of about garment repair and, and other things. And that's kind of related to circularity and, you know, not reducing overproduction um, by, you know, maintaining and fixing the clothes that already exist rather than making new stuff. So anyway, tell me about the the panel. There, I saw some really great names, um, you know, Archive, uh, eBay, um, Ted Baker, we're all there. Tell me more about it. Yeah, I mean, I think the main focus of the panel was um, around kind of garment care communication, but also kind of the technology that is being integrated to um, give more information about garments and therefore give more information about repair as well. Um, so the the names that were on the panel, I think, yes, you said that Ted Baker, eBay Archive, Sojo, which is um, a repair um, app and B2B service in the UK, um, as well as um, Avery Dennison, who is kind of the main um, garment tag slash um, care label um, leader in the space and is working with, you know, most of the brands in in fashion to kind of communicate that um, all of the things that they're talking about on the garment through the care label, which essentially is, you know, a tiny little bit of um, material so um we were talking a lot about qr codes um and the integration of rfid tags which are basically all new ways of um integrating technology so that a customer can scan something and receive more information about the garment on their phone i think it plays into the wider conversation right now around you know garment traceability where there's massive partnerships with um you know brands like Chloe and Eon, who are, um, again, kind of a garment tag um, specific company. Um, and they've created products with Chloe now, which are designed basically for resale. So they have that integration where, for example, they can be automatically um, added into Bestia Collective, which is a big kind of resale platform after, you know, someone is you know, no longer kind of willing to um, to wear it or want to just resell it for something else. So I think that that's something that we were talking about where all of these integrations right now are really important thing. And some of the, the things that came out of this conversation were around trust um, and kind of how much a customer can trust a brand or a platform to have all of that traceability data on there. So I think a lot of it was just about, you know, making sure you have clear communication um, and the other thing was, and I think this is quite interesting and a bit poetic, was that there was a lot of conversation tied to the emotional kind of significance of clothes and kind of how that's tying into their value. So, for example, like, you know, with with things on eBay, which is one of the 
um, platforms that was on the panel, like sometimes people like to have a bit of a backstory to a garment, where it comes from, like not just about material composition, but about like, you know, its point of origin, whose hands has it been through, what kind of story they have. And that almost adds value to the garment. Um, so we were talking about, you know, possibly communicating that kind of information through a QR code as well to bring more value to the garment than just simply, you know, its materials and composition. Yeah, that's super interesting, that idea of um, finding value in the story of a garment. Um, I, I was talking to somebody, I think at, uh, it might have been Recurate, one of the branded resale kind of um, companies like Archive. And we were talking about some outerwear brand that had a resale section, and they were encouraging people to kind of put in the description, like, I wore this to the top of Kilimanjaro or something, <laughs> or I wore this while, you know... In, you know, climbing El Capitan or something um, to encourage people to kind of say where these pieces have been because that adds something, especially for that kind of category. You know, people love their adventure stories. Um, mm. But yeah, I, th I think garment repair is, is super interesting. Um, you mentioned Sojo was there and they're a, a repair company. Um, there was uh, another company, I think, called The Restory that was um, mm. doing like luxury clothing repair. And I, I forget if they actually shut down, but I know that their founders kind of resigned recently and it's kind of up in the air what exactly is going on there. Um, it, As important as it is, it feels like a little bit of a difficult area to navigate. Um, I know some brands have told me that repair is kind of expensive and sort of complicated if you, for example, want to like take stuff back from people and fix it and send it back to them or have some sort of service like that, um, it's pretty resource intensive. Um, did the did that come up at the panel of sort of navigating stuff like that and you know how to make that more worth it? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is also about education. I think it wasn't on this panel specifically, but Patagonia, who was the um, kind of keynote speaker at the um, at the forum they were talking about how they're integrating educational programs into their repair. So it's not just about a brand taking something back, but they're also providing educational resources for customers to do it themselves should they need to. Um, and, you know, especially for performance gear, I think that kind of stuff makes sense because you're talking about, you know, making quick repairs. You don't really have time if you're using something constantly to send it back to a brand and have it come back to you. Um, and there are some kind of more scalable efforts around repair that I think make it a possibility. It's just a case of investment in that infrastructure from, you know, companies like Uniqlo that have expanded their repair category um, because of the fact they've been, you know, hemming um, jeans and trousers for I think it's I think it's over 15 years now. So I think that for a lot of brands, that repair proposition is becoming more likely Um and it does make sense for them, you know, if they're talking about recycling materials that, you know, the the kind of pieces that they have already in um, production might actually be or well, have more value in a sense than um, the pieces that they would have to re um, kind of refiber um, just to have new product. So I think that it, it does make sense. It's just a case of, you know, a long term investment rather than thinking about those short term gains. And that that came up on the panel where. You know, Sojo was talking about the partners that it worked with, um, that a lot of the times it is simply convincing them and kind of explaining to them why, you know, a long-term investment rather than thinking about a particular quarter gain um, is more important mm. for the brand. Yeah, for sure. And and I've talked to a couple um, 
a couple of these branded resale companies and, and some brands about um, maybe wanting to leverage resale a little bit for some of the stuff. Like I've, I've talked to them about, um, you know, could we use resale as a channel to sell some things that were damaged or, you know, that maybe can't be sold new. Um, and uh, a couple of the branded resale platforms have told me that they're kind of interested in and thinking about if they could maybe add a repair service or something. Um, mm -hmm. Again, like you said, obviously getting the, you know, educating the customer on how to not destroy their pieces and make them last is, you know, probably the most efficient way to do it. Um, but I do think that there probably would be some good money to be made if uh, one of those companies could come up with like a really easy enterprise kind of repair service that would take care of that for the brands. Because like I said, I know that that's um, pretty complicated and difficult for some of them. Any other interesting tidbits that came out of that panel? Yeah, I think that the main one is just the issue of communication in like a simple way. I think a lot of the times when you're talking about sustainability and all the various kind of topics like repair and resell, like customers can get lost. And, you know, a lot of the times those things are only being communicated through one channel. So I think the the Ted Baker spokesperson was talking about how, you know, communicating everything in a simple way in an omni-channel approach was like really important because it's not just about you know one simple kind of Instagram post or something or one campaign it kind of needs to be embedded in the way that a brand communicates with their customer and they need to do that in a way which is like idiot proof yeah <laughs> and uh, and I'm, it affects their design process I'm sure too when you want to make things that can be taken care of and that can last um again there's like we were saying mm. earlier there is a whole business model about making stuff that's not meant to last but um I don't think that's very good long term <laughs> for the world um cool well I'm glad that you got to do this panel um it looked really fun and thank you for you know giving us a little report on, you know, what people talked about. Um, I think that's all the time we have this week, but uh, it's always fun having you on, Zofia. For those of you listening at home um, or I guess wherever you are, don't forget to give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening to. That helps us out so much. We'd really appreciate it. Um, and if you haven't subscribed to the Glossy Podcast, you should because every Wednesday, uh, either me or Jill will do some sort of uh, interview with cool industry insiders. And then every Friday, me and Jill or me and Sophia or me and somebody else will do the Week in Review episodes, which we have so much fun doing. So thanks for listening. And Sophia, once again, thanks for being here. Thank you.